art's so crucial always, especially in moments where the world's in a bit of a crisis. Pushing what art is. Well, art is a conversation. When I see artists who are making something that's pushing the conversation forward, then that's what's exciting to me. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Today we're speaking with Tiffany Zabludowicz, born in London and now based in New York City. Tiffany was introduced to art at a young age. Two years after she was born, her parents founded the Zabludowicz Collection in London. Tiffany runs and curates the Times Square space, which hosts exhibitions within the rotating empty offices of 1500 Broadway in the heart of Times Square. She is the chairwoman of the Young Collectors Council at the Guggenheim and a founding member of the New Museum's Artemis Council. She has a particular interest in emerging and post-internet art. Her personal collection features work by artists such as Tracy Emin, Item Idem, Josephine Mexipa, Joel Holmberg, Puppies Puppies and Artie Beerkant. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Welcome Tiffany, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So Tiffany, I'm sure that everybody that starts talking to you about your collection is immediately going to want to talk to you about your parents. So we're absolutely not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to do the exact opposite. But it is true to say that you have basically been around art and artists and collecting since you were born, literally since you were born. Can you talk about how much that's influenced you? It's absolutely influenced me. I'm totally influenced by what my mum does. I think she's amazing. And I think it gave me the introduction I needed being around it. When you're an art kid, you internalize what you're surrounded by. So it makes it easier to collect by instinct. Just seeing so much from a young age and following my mum to galleries and museums. Is your father as involved yes. with the collection as your mother? Yes, absolutely. But my mum, I think it's her full-time job so she sees a little bit more. It was very much something that I've always done more with my mum, but it's a family collection, so the whole family's involved. And you have siblings, right? Yeah. I have siblings, I have three siblings. We're four in total, Okay. four kids. Where do you come in the chain? I'm the second child. Okay. Yeah. And do your brothers and sisters share your interest? They do, in a different way, but they definitely do, yeah. But would it be fair to say you're the most Focused. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. yeah, for now. For now. <laughs> and have you found that as you've grown up around the collection, around artists that are in the collection, I'm sure you met many of them, have they become important touchstones for you in terms of thinking about how you interact with artists and how you would collect? 
Well, I think when you grow up around art and artists, you develop a natural respect and understanding for artists. You, you see how important their role is and you also just know how to talk to them quite naturally. And that's been very useful. And also you have an idea of how to support them and how to work with them in the long term because I've seen it done by my mum. So I know how to continue a relationship in the future as well and how to think so long term. I mean, the work that you would have, the artists you would have grown up around and the work that you would have grown up around was not unchallenging. I mean, some of it was quite tough. Have there been things that you felt uncomfortable around or you didn't like, or have you ever felt particularly challenged in a way that was unproductive? The ironic result of that is that actually I find work that's not challenging, sometimes quite boring. <laughs> For example, the medium I have trouble with is painting, although I'm actually more recently starting to love painting. But I started with more challenging mediums and then got into painting later. So it's had like the adverse effect. That's almost the reverse to the way anybody would normally do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd normally think about starting with prints and drawings and paintings and then working towards the more challenging material. But you, your experience has actually been the reverse. Yeah, instead my first love was probably, I mean, I studied art history in school and that's when I first started to understand art properly on my, of my own accord. And I did start with prints, like most collectors, just for the price point. But the first time I really, really got engaged with art was when I started seeing video art. Oh, I would interesting. Say. When you say you started with prints and you bought your first print at 16, right? Um, yeah, I think I was 16. It was from Zoo Art Fair. It was a photograph by Jack Strange. But the first work I received was for my bat mitzvah, uh, Grayson Perry from Glenn Scott Wright for Victoria Miro. Yeah. That's still in my bedroom and definitely like a pinnacle of my collection. <laughs> I mean, how were you collecting at that point? Were you being given gifts or you had an allowance or you were saving up your money and going out and buying a work? Or? At that point, I was saving up my pocket money, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's very unusual for somebody, be, a young woman, to be saving up their pocket money and going out and buying art. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly the normal route, is it? Well, they were additions at first and then my mum recognised that I could be taken a little more seriously. So at 18, I was given a budget and I saved my entire budget all year. And then at Miami Basel, bought a painting by Garth Pfizer from Casey Kaplan, right. which was really exciting. Fantastic. So and you've still got all these pieces. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, you are without doubt thus far the youngest person that's ever been on Collect Wisely. And I gave it away earlier by talking about 1982. So, <laughs> I mean, we can acknowledge that you're 26 years old. But you've been around you've been around collecting and thinking about collecting your entire life. And that's one of the things that I'm particularly interested in talking to you about. I mean, my kids grew up with artists and around collectors all their lives. And it's always fascinated me as to how much they absorbed or how much they were aware of and what was going in and what was sticking. And I guess it's quite a lot because they both work at the gallery and look at what you're doing, right? So how, how would you say, was there a moment at which you, you realised that this wasn't how everybody was growing up, that this wasn't normal, that you, were, that you were privileged in a certain way to knowing these people and understanding how they thought? 
I guess it was to do with school. Um, we once went on a school trip to my house. That felt strange. When you're learning about an artwork and then you realize you live with it, that's also when you realize it's a privilege. But also I think if you grow up with art, in general you grow up with an open perspective to the world that's quite unique. And even if you don't grow up with it and you come to it later, anyone who appreciates art is much more open to being affronted with new things, I think. Which, uh, having that from a young age, that perspective definitely differentiates you and it's very special. You've talked about being around artists and how it's influenced your thinking, but at a tender age, you're quite accomplished. You've, you've got a degree in art history, you're a curator, you're doing exhibitions, a number of exhibitions every year. So you're very proactive within the community, not just as a collector, but as a sort of professional, but in a very guerrilla way, I think. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you're, you're not fixed in one place. You're very peripatetic. You're moving between projects. You're moving around in some sort of interstitial space that it feels like you're trying to define for yourself exactly what that role will be. Yeah. And also, yeah, I've never thought about it like that but I think that's accurate yeah well you aren't within an institution no you are free yeah and you are you know you're working in a way which is got quite a light footprint at the moment I'm trying to yeah with Times Square Space has been my main project for the past couple of years um, and with that I'm really trying to establish a space for experimentation in New York. So a space that is exactly as you say, free. It's not a gallery. It's a bit more institutional, but obviously I can't quite call it a museum. Yeah. So it means that artists have the freedom to be a bit more playful because they don't have the pressure of a museum or the financial pressure of a gallery. It can just be an exhibition that's institutionally thought about or curated, but still. Do you think there's a possible new model in that space in some way? Because everybody talks about art fairs, they talk about galleries, and the crisis in less people going to galleries. And then there are galleries that are kind of becoming much larger and having lots of different outposts all over the world, almost, you know, on a sort of a mega scale. But I wonder what this generation of artists that you belong to, the much younger generation of, of thinkers, critical thinkers and artists, are thinking about right now about that model because that model feels like it belongs to the past. I think that model's really complicated at the moment. So many galleries are shutting down and young artists are just having a really hard time of it in a way. Museums are working with artists when they're so young, which is excellent in a way, but also puts them under a pressure that I think is quite challenging. So it is a time when new models need to be created. So I just feel like this is working for the artists. I'm also providing space in New York, which is difficult. I mean, you know, space is a, the hardest thing yeah, to have in New premium. York. So it's just creating something that I think is benefiting them. I'm super interested in this particular topic because one of the things that I have become very aware of and was taught recently, relatively recently, is that in between the generational shifts that have occurred, 
there is a very specific mindset, conceptual shift that's occurred as well. And that is that your generation and the generation probably a little older than you think completely differently to my generation. I mean, with my generation, where the galleries were coming up, it was very hard scrabble. You had to make your way and it wasn't adversarial, but it was, you know, you really had to kind of be very determined to power through. Not that you don't have to be now, but I think your generation is much more collaborative and they're wired differently in terms of how they think and how they can conceive of models within the art world. Do you think that's true? Well, my understanding of your generation is that it was a much smaller art world. Is that correct? And also less yeah. people were interested in art, as Absolutely. far as I know. So it was much harder to actually... I feel like an artist becoming an artist, it wasn't a profession in the way it is now. There wasn't likely that it would pay the bills. It was more um, just to be an artist. Whereas now I think it's become more professional and there's more interest and that changes the game and just requires new and, models to keep it more pressure. how we want it, yeah, to keep it pure. So, well, that's a super interesting observation, to keep it pure, what do you mean by that? <laughs> to keep it about the art and to keep it, you know, to keep the dialogue. Art's so crucial always, especially in moments where the world's in a bit of a crisis. Artists have to exist outside of the mainstream, so to speak, or have to be able to be artists and free to make art that's thoughtful and deep. And so, how do you reconcile that? I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Yes, yeah. I love the fact that you know you're saying that. I'm very much a product of the sort of '60s counterculture movement in that sense, cool. and you know I think we had certain ideals about what we wanted to do. I was trained as an artist and as a curator and a museum director, but I, somehow along the way we didn't get it right. I mean, it kind of got it got bent out of shape somehow. I love the fact that I'm hearing you saying that. How do you imagine that that you manage that in this very different, very changed art world? where there is enormous amounts of money being exchanged. There's an art fair every week somewhere on the planet. There are biennials opening bi-weekly. And as you correctly say, probably when I started out in the art world, a good parallel would be that the entire art world was like a small stream. And now it's like the Orinoco or the Amazon <laughs> raging away. How do you keep it pure in, in that sense? How do you support artists and take the pressure off them and keep it, you used the word, and I love the fact you did, you, you said keep it pure. How do you do that? Well, that's a really tough one, but I think there's so many good artists still. It's not like, in fact, maybe there are more good artists. And I think as long as, I don't know how to cure the whole art world, but I think as long as you create space for those artists to do what they're doing and keep doing what they're doing, I mean, there's also pluses to it as well, because with the art world being bigger, it means that there's a more diverse, you know, that like with social media, it's created a wider network of artists. So it's, there's artists all over the world, it's international, and in a way that's positive because then it's a more diverse group of people who are making art. But yeah, I think it's just working with good artists and helping them in any way they need, keep supporting artists. and. 
So do you very much have a group of artists that you're committed to, that you focus on, that you're working with on an ongoing basis that Pretty you, much. you feel committed to? I mean, there's, yeah, basically every artist I collect, I really do feel committed to. It's not just buying a work and putting it on my wall. There's a lot of commissions in a way, like working with artists to make work. And then I really do plan on following them for their whole careers. How many works do you have in your Often collection? Often end up showing them. It's difficult to say because it's connected to the collection at large. A few now, like quite a, a f maybe a couple of... But independently that you feel like your, your babies. Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. But there's like, um, I think about 30 artists that I feel very committed to. Right. Which already feels like... A lot. A lot, yeah. And do you think do you think it's correct? I mean, am I correct in sort of saying that it feels like there's a possibility that artists are thinking about the mechanisms of the art world differently now, younger artists, and that there might be something that will emerge that will be unlike the models that we've seen? Yeah. I don't know what it'll be. Do you know do you have a sense of what that is yet? No idea. Really no idea. But the model as it exists is, as you know, as everyone's kind of witnessing is changing. Yeah, very fast. And do you think that your model that you're working with now is a potential alternative to that? I think it's, well, the problem is it's separate because the model that I'm creating is not like commercial. It's non-commercial. So it's not a solution for art, it's not the only solution. There has to be other models working alongside me, basically. How does that work in terms of supporting an artist's practice? I mean, you can give them a platform to show the work yeah. that you have to be responsible for financially supporting in some way. Exactly. Or figuring out where that support is going to come from. Collecting is also a way of financially supporting an artist, yeah. the purest way yeah. or the simplest way. Well, the, the very reason why we wanted to do Collect Wisely and only talk to collectors is a really fundamental sense that, especially today, often the first support comes from an artist, from a collector, because it's much more likely they can react very quickly before the institutions pile on. So I'm particularly interested in the way collectors are thinking about collecting, because it seems to me that they really are on the cutting edge of of supporting artists. I think patronage still exists. That hasn't changed. I mean, that's still the fundamental role of a collector. And yeah, that's that's still the same to support an artist in that way. But you're not a Medici. I'm not uh, a Medici. <laughs> no, but if it's a young artist, it doesn't have to be a huge financial investment. Right. Right. A little bit to start someone off is amazing. And when you make that commitment, do you tend to continue? I mean, have you, you said the first painting you bought was by Garth Weiser. Yeah. Have you bought other works by him since then? Well, he's done really well, so I've only bought one <laughs> other one by him. <laughs> but I have bought one other one by him, yeah. You continue to look and follow up. Yeah. Right. He, yeah. So we should find out who you're collecting now so that we, you know, because obviously you're very good at this and you've picked some, some people who have become very successful. So who are you looking at right now? Most recent acquisition is by an artist called Jordan Casey, who's a young painter. I first saw her work at Signal Gallery in Brooklyn, which very recently closed its doors actually, but was an amazing gallery because it was less commercial. It was almost a project space and did great shows. 
but I bought two pieces from them and then recently went to her studio on the hottest day in New York. It was boiling hot outside <laughs> and she was talking about how temperature affects how she paints. When it's hot outside, she paints much more warmly and how her paintings of people are almost statuesque. And then she said because of that, she started doing these charcoal drawings of sculptures that she's just seen everywhere, like ancient Mayan sculptures or sculptures at the Met. And she started getting them out in her studio like playing cards. Just a whole series of these amazing charcoal drawings. I think she must have had 30. And they were like so big and just incredible. So I acquired two of those and another painting by her, which is really exciting. And then I guess another artist I'm looking at, I did a show or curated a show of an artist called Signe Pierce, who I first saw at Satellite Art Show in Miami a few years ago, where she did an installation that was based on people's craze about the Zika virus and did a performance and was lying in a bed eating a donut and had palm trees everywhere. And she looks at a world that is neon and hyper-real that she considers a more real version of America than any other way of describing it. So I'm in the process of acquiring work by her, which is exciting. And you obviously do a lot of studio visits. Yes. And do you find fairs are useful to you in terms of looking at work or a sort of shorthand way of seeing a lot of things quickly? Yeah, I wish I could say no. I do fear fairs because I, I'm scared they're hegemon hegemonizing the art world and because it starts to be that once you go to six or more fairs a year you start to see the same things at every single fair but I go straight to the young section I've made really good discoveries at fairs I have seen artist practice grow through seeing it at fairs I also like satellite art fairs a lot like NADA or Sunday there's always great satellite art fairs or even satellite art shows by younger artists. Um, Spring Break is another example of a great fair or satellite art show. <laughs> so a lot of people might go to those fairs and be very afraid of trusting their taste to make a decision. I mean, it's interesting to me because a lot of people say, well, you know, there, there's this issue about going to a very upscale gallery that you can sometimes not feel included. Or if you go to a very large affairs, you could be intimidated by the quality of the material or the dealers. I, I think there could be a very strong argument that a lot of people would go to the fairs that you're talking about and feel, how do I figure out who's going to be good here? How do I, how do I sort through all this material I'm looking at? But you seem to be totally comfortable doing that. Well, I think... The more art you see, the more informed your vision is, and then you can make an informed choice. But also, if you like something, generally you're never going to stop liking it, even if you get more informed. What does it matter if it doesn't make it, per se? And then also, I like to think that if I do really like something, maybe I can make an impact on it, and that's also exciting. So. I'm sort of taking it into my hands a little bit. Well, and that your patronage and your enthusiasm and buoy it up in some way and create a context for it to be seen differently. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. 
so I'm going to ask you about this again because I want to go back to it because I thought it was fantastic. You used this word twice. You've used the word pure twice. Okay. And I want to know what that means to you in the context of looking at work or thinking about work. It just means really, really good art that's coming from the place that really, really good art comes from. That's not, that's not being thoughtful about the market. That's not, that's just genuine and coming from someone, an artist in a genuine way. I think that's the best art when you can feel that there's, you know, someone meaning it behind the. And you don't have any prescription surrounding that concept that it needs to be validated somehow by its value or a dealer or anything else. You're very happy to trust your taste in your eye. Um, yeah, pretty much. It's nice or it, it helps when someone else agrees with you that it's good art. No, because I think that's. Yeah, I do trust. I, I mean, I, I think that's an incredible. I think that's an incredible strength for a young collector, to be able to 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 state that. I mean, I think it's fantastic. You have said that you admire collectors like Peggy Guggenheim. Yeah, I do. Um, and others who have been quite fearless in their pursuit of challenging work. Yeah. And you equally stated that you like work that pushes the boundaries of culture and what art is. What do you exactly mean by that? In Peggy Guggenheim was functioning in the 30s and 40s, almost 100 years ago. What does that look like now, Tiffany, for you at the beginning of, well, we're 18 years into the 21st century. What does that model look like for you? So when Peggy Guggenheim started, she had a gallery and she became a collector because she couldn't sell anything out of her gallery and she ended up owning those works. She had a lot of conflict with her uncle who didn't always like what she collected. She found Pollock when he was working at the Guggenheim. Things like that, that, that level of fearlessness is what inspires me. Pushing what art is. Well, art is a conversation. And I think if I've seen it before, I don't necessarily want to see it again. When I see artists who are making something that's pushing the conversation forward, then that's what's exciting to me. You also said that you have a particular interest in, po in post-internet art, which you defined as not too media specific, but flowing between online and offline. I said that. Yeah, okay. you did. <laughs> it sounds awfully smart, but I don't exactly know what, how would I recognize what that looks like? So post-internet art is a movement that, in a way, you can argue it started with Andy Warhol and then continues with artists like Wade Guyton, Seth Price, until it leads into artists like Artie Veerkant or Hayley Mellon. That's its trajectory. And post-internet is basically as defined by Artie Veerkant, an image object, where an image can exist online and then it, it, because images are so present, they can be reproduced on a t-shirt or a CD or in multiple formats, right. um, w which is just like the, so it doesn't matter if it's online or offline because it will always come back to being online. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. What does that do to the market? How does that, how does that link to the market if such a link is relevant? I guess it it's actually has linked to the market. I mean, at first it seemed it wouldn't because when things can exist in so many multiple formats, maybe it would only end up existing online and then it doesn't link to the market. But then I guess it has because you look at artists like Seth Price, who's doing very well, Oliver Larrick, who's printing the same images multiple times and that's part of his practice. R.T. Veerkant's Photoshop. So he creates a work, photographs it, photoshops the photograph, then prints that as his next work, then photoshops that, etc., etc., and that's so his image object keeps series. Itself. Yeah. It strikes me that one could argue that the, we were talking about the scale of the art world now. I think one could argue that, the, I mean, it certainly is a very large art world and there's a lot of people involved in it and there's a lot of interest. More people going to museums than ever, more people spending more money at auction than ever. Do you think that there's a danger that the art market has become so powerful that it can consume anything and bend it to its will? I mean, it's interesting that recently, you know, Banksy, who was supposed to be the ultimate outsider artist, yeah. you know, pulled that there was a stunt pulled at one of the auction houses where one of his paintings was shredded and self-destructed. And then the papers the next day were all full of the fact that, oh, it'll be so worth sad. even more money <laughs> yeah. now because it was self, because it was destructed. But I mean, no, do, do because... Think, do you think that somebody like Artie... Well, I want to leave back yeah, yeah. for a second, come Sorry. back to Artie Vierkant. Do you think that somebody like Artie Vierkant can remain pure and outside the market? Or do you think that the market can just absorb everything and, 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 and take it? I don't know. I did an event on Saturday with Living Content where we had artists speaking, 10 artists speaking about their work for about half an hour. And the conversations were so in-depth and so intellectual and so about their art. And as long as you talk about that and go down into the deep conversation, then the market can't touch that. that that's a conversation that will happen whether the market's on top of it or not. It does, obviously it does affect and it plays its games and its role. But I think, I think also something changed when Trump got elected maybe, because- Quite a few things changed yeah. when Trump got elected. <laughs> but I think it led people to really stop and evaluate, or at least artists to stop and evaluate why they were making art. And that reason, is far more than a market reason. So I think, although it does obviously influence, it's, it can't change the whole of art. But interestingly enough, I don't think we're sort of two years into this particular presidency. I'm not seeing a lot of politicized work. I'm not seeing a it lot of political to. work from you know old, older or younger artists that's addressing that this moment head on, are you? am I missing it or are you seeing it? Well, I just don't think it has to be political to be necessary. I think in a world where, where there's issues like racism and issues that polarizing and issues that just shouldn't exist in 2018, just an artist making art is what's important, just creating, like I mentioned earlier, a perspective that's open so it doesn't actually have to hit the nail on the head and be about what's going on in the world. It just has to be meaningful. 
and it just has to exist. It can't be surface. It has to have the depth to make an impact in this world. I mean, you seem actually incredibly optimistic to me that art still intellectually and emotionally, I think, occupies a space. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a safe space, but as a, as a powerful intellectual space where, where we can all receive sustenance from it. Is that a fair characterization or do you yes. characterize it differently? Yeah, and I also think that I mean, I also think that the mass appeal that art has now, it's become much more popular in culture, just highlights that, it highlights its importance right now. Do you think that's a good thing? How, how many more people are going to museums and institutions and looking at art, is that good? Or does it instinctively create its alternative where artists be a little bit more private, a little bit more hidden? I think it's a great thing. Artists are actually, I mean, most artists, some are very public on Instagram, but artists are always a little bit hidden behind their work anyway, um, as people. Do you, do, are but, you on Instagram a lot? Yes. And is that a powerful tool for you? Yes. To do what with? To communicate, to show people what you like, to see other things? How are you using it? I use it for all of the above, to promote things, to talk to people, yeah, to talk to artists, to have conversations to see what's going on. I think an artist who doesn't have a gallery, for example, can have a presence on Instagram without needing that. An artist who lives in Canada, I can see their work on a daily basis. Have you bought work from Instagram? I've never bought from Instagram, but I've, I've started conversations right. with artists over Instagram, like DMing direct and, messaging for conversation and subsequently met them and yes. seen the work and visited the studios yeah so you have that's led you to buy work yeah on occasion or seen their work once and yeah. then followed their career on instagram yeah and do you have a network of people on instagram whose opinion you you feel is informative or helpful to you that that you feel informed by um Yes, although I can't specify who it is. I follow like a thousand people. Sure. <laughs> but I think I've got, I follow good people. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we've been talking with people a lot, um, and I always, I think this is always a good question for everybody. I think it's going to be a particularly interesting question for you because I think, um, you know, the idea of connoisseurship can be uh, misleading in certain respects. How would you, if I asked you to think about connoisseurship, how would you start talking about that and what it means for you? Oh gosh, um, I think connoisseurship is just, starts with passion and the actual feeling that you want to educate yourself or be educated in it because you do have to know Right, it's connoisseur, it's, it's about knowing what you're looking at. But I think now we live in a world where visual literacy is at an all-time high. People now of my generation are better at reading art, accepting art. People accept experiences much more readily. So there's a lot more potential for people to become connoisseurs. 
Do you think easier. your generation's better at reading? When you say reading art, we're talking about visual information. Yeah. When, do you think your generation's better at reading visual information and is losing the ability to read, or do you think they are still readers? Audiobooks, has podcasts. I mean, you yeah. know, people might be reading in a different way, but you it's can access still... your information in so many different ways now. Yeah, I mean, I, I have heard that reading's gone down the toilet, but I still read. My well, friends still I, read. But actually, it's I, I don't think that's true at all because I think there are now more bookstores and more books being written and more more libraries being built than ever before. So I think, yeah. you know, it's one of those interesting moments where everybody says, oh, you know, Amazon's going to kill shopping and, you know, it's, uh, the lack of bookstores and lack of record stores is going to kill music and kill literature. But I don't think it's working like that at all. I, ju I just think we're all thinking about it differently and accessing it differently. Yeah. But it is a very interesting point that you raise that your generation and future young generations are absorbing visual information at an unprecedented rate. And, you know, how is that going to change the way that we're wired and our synapses? I mean, none of us know what art's going to look like in 20 years' time, do we? No, definitely not. You can never know that. But it just means, it just means that art has to be really almost better because if people, you know, it's like with the advent of photography, there were so many photographs, what defines an artist making photographs? How is it better? And it's the same... Well, it's a super interesting conversation sort of because, I mean, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of photographers recently, and, and my question to them is, is always the same. Uh, you know, we know that Henri Cartier-Bresson or Kertege or, you know, uh, anybody you want, Edward Weston, were great photographs because we have the document. They made the photographs, they developed them, we have the document. But now it seems that the, the challenge is so much greater because we all carry around a camera in our pockets. We are all photographers. And how does a, a, a serious working photographer today make images that are going to affect us in the same way or that are going to stick with us? And I think that's a huge challenge. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the equivalent to how are artists going to make those images that are going to stay with us in the age of Instagram? Yeah. And they are, they're well, doing it. They I are mean, doing it, yeah, but it's... And what's nice is that also, I think also you see it that an artist makes a work and then it somehow dribbles. I mean, that's also what post-internet is about, by the way, that an image gets dribbled through the internet and repurposed. And suddenly you're looking at a meme that's been influenced by an artwork and doesn't even know it. And but it's interesting visual culture. How that happens. So you think it's becoming more porous? More porous, yeah. But, but equally valent? I mean, it's continuing to have its kind of impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you know when you're looking at a work of art. You just know. Well, I think I do. Yeah. You know, and I'm trying to figure out what everybody else's interpretation of that is. Because for me, it's really fascinating. Because, you know, talking to you is a completely different experience. You know, I get an insight into how you and your generation are thinking and talking about looking at art. I mean, it's completely fascinating to me because, uh, you know, it's like peeling layers off my eyes. It's very healthy. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny to talk about it because, as I said at the beginning, for me, it really is instinct. I just go with what I feel. Right at the beginning of this conversation, I wrote down the word instinct. <laughs> 
because you <laughs> used it immediately. And one of the things I often ask people is, how do they collect? Are they instinctual? Are they emotional? You know, are they analytical? But you went right there, right at the beginning of the conversation. You answered it before I even asked the question. And you said that you responded very much on instinct. So that's brought us full circle. Perfect. Almost perfect. Because I, <laughs> I have one last question for you. And you, you know, you're going to be great at answering this because you studied art history and you also studied literary history. So the question is, if you had to pick one artwork in the history of art, it doesn't have to be something you own or that anybody you know has ever collected, and it could come from any museum in the world and you had to spend the rest of eternity with one artwork to sustain you, what would you choose? The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. That it was way be. too quick. You've obviously <laughs> thought about this before. I mean, no, because it might be a traumatic eternity, because it, but I don't know, that's sort of a painting about eternity. Wow. And that's like, yeah, because I've also just been thinking about it lately, because it's... And there's an enormous amount of detail in there to sustain you through yeah. those, long, those long evenings of looking. Yeah. And it feels contemporary, even though it was made so long ago. Yeah, it does. It also would have been really real to an audience then, so it feels like it could be the first example of virtual reality, <laughs> in a way. And it's just a painting. I really, yeah, exactly, I love it. And some of the aspects of what that painting depicts feels exactly what we're going through in this political moment, as far as I'm concerned. True. So it feels very contemporary in that way as well. And it leaves you to think about eternity for eternity, which is sort of an interesting wow, place. that's a good place to finish. <laughs> so, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on Collect Wisely and talking to us. And I hope you'll come back in a decade's time and uh, we'll know whether you're <laughs> right about all these uh, directions you've told us to look into. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at SeanKellyNY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Thank you.